Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. I will be reading Romans 12, 14 to 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Grant. Appreciate you reading that to us this morning. I want to begin today by um, by asking you to do something that you um, that you might find just a little bit unpleasant. All right. Typically, we don't think of coming to church having to do things that are unpleasant, but uh, what I'm going to ask you to do is probably going to come across to some of us as just being a little unpleasant. Perhaps something that we would kind of prefer not to do rather than do. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to think of the person in your life who has hurt you the most. Again, not necessarily a very pleasant thing to do, but I want you to think for just a moment of the person in your life who has hurt you the most. Not necessarily the person that has done something against you that is criminal, but maybe that person that has treated you unfairly, or that person that has Um, gossiped about you, or that person that has walked out on you or betrayed you, perhaps that person that has lied to you, uh, taken your money, wounded someone you love, or even wounded you, attempted to ruin your life. I want you to kind of vividly bring to your mind the face of that person or group of persons who have kind of been the conduit of evil directed at you who've kind of been the conduit of of directing some some serious pain at you. I want you to just think of that person for a moment. Just picture that person in your mind. And then I want to ask this question. How do we respond? How are we to respond when evil is aimed at us? How are we to respond to those who aim evil at us? How do we deal with those people that uh, maybe you don't have this, but occasionally I have this, How do we deal with those people that we have anger fantasies about? You know, we just sort of mull them over in our minds, and we just think of ways that uh, we would just like to see them get what they deserve, get what's coming to them, get what they ought to get. How How do we deal with those kind of people? You know, I think there's little more difficult in life than to deal with people who have been the source of evil that is aimed at us. Moving beyond the wounds of that evil, 
moving beyond the pain of that evil, the outcome of that evil. I mean, moving beyond that is, um, it is a difficult thing to do. I mean, there are wounds, there is bitterness, and it is hard. It is difficult. Sometimes it feels almost impossible to get beyond those things when people aim evil at us. Well, on those Sunday mornings when I've had the privilege of, of speaking to you and sharing a message, we've been going through Romans 12. And in Romans 12, we've been learning about what, it's, what is involved in following Christ, what is involved in being an authentic follower of Christ. I think many of us know, if you've ever read the book of Romans, that the first 11 chapters of Romans are all about the details of our faith, the content of our faith. But when we come to chapter 12 of Romans and 13 of Romans, it's all about living out the details of that faith. It's all about living out our faith. And so we've been learning about what it means to live out our faith in relationship with God, in relationship with ourselves, with other believers. Well, now this morning, we need to examine what it means to live out our faith in relationship to those who oppose us or in relationship with those who aim evil at us. What does living out our faith in those situations look like? What is it not to look like? What is it, is, is it positively to look like? What does God want us to do? What does he not want us to do? Well, I think the answer, at least in part, is found in Romans 12, 14 to 21, the verses that Grant just read to us just a couple of moments ago. But before we actually get into those verses, I want you to remember that these are hard verses. As Grant read the verses, you probably thought to yourself, that is not an easy thing to do, to bless a persecutor, to not seek vengeance against those that have hurt us. When they're thirsty, to give them something to drink. When they're hungry, to give them something to eat. That is, that is not an easy thing to do. This is a tough thing to do. In fact, this is possibly one of the hardest areas for us to follow Christ, to walk in his footsteps, to do what he would want us to do. You see, for some, this is going to involve a willingness to face maybe some pain from our past and to allow God to do a, a healing work in our hearts. For others of us, it's not really a past thing. It's a present thing. I mean, there is somebody at work right now. There is someone in our family right now. There is that person that we share custody of our children with that is just being the conduit of evil and pain and difficulty in our lives. And we say, what does God want me to do? Well, God has some very specific instruction for us found here in Hebrews 12, 14 to 21. It's a very specific instruction for how we are to respond to the evil that is aimed at us. And since we know that this is God's instruction, then that tells us a couple of things. It tells us, number one, there is help for us in this situation. It also tells us that there's hope in this situation because God's solutions are not only accurate solutions, they're effective solutions, they are powerful solutions in our lives. So let's talk this morning about how it is that we are to overcome the evil that is aimed at us, how we are to follow Christ and live out our faith when people are the sources of difficulty and pain directed at us. Now, as, as Grant read the verses just a moment ago, you may have noticed that the first three verses are basically a positive command, verses 14, 15, and 16. They outline for us what God wants us to do in these situations. Verses 17 to 21 are more of a negative command. They outline what God doesn't want us to do in these situations. And our goal this morning is to look at the positive command. Our goal this morning is to look at verses 14 to 16, and then next Sunday, Lord willing, to look at verses 17 to 21. So today we're going to focus on a positive command, and that command is given to us in verse 14, where the writer of Romans, Paul, writes this, 
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. So what does it mean to bless our enemies, to bless our persecutors? What does it mean to bless those who have done evil towards us? What does that mean? Well, I think it means a number of things, but I think one of the things that it definitely means is that we need to develop a mindset of forgiveness toward them, a mindset of forgiveness toward them. Because to bless someone, the word bless that's used here in this text, it literally means to wish them well, to wish them well. It means to desire God's favor upon their lives. In contrast, the word that is used in this text for curse, it literally means to pray against. It means to call down doom or to wish for their disaster, their failure, or their misfortune. So why should I bless? Why should I wish someone well who has been so mean and so evil toward me? Why should I even consider doing that? Why should I even want to do that? Well, maybe a passage that can help us with that is found in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. I invite you to turn to Matthew 5, verses 43 to 45, where we find words of Jesus that are kind of directed to the same idea of how it is that we are to face and confront and live out our faith toward those that do evil toward us. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, Jesus said this. He said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. I think what Jesus is doing in these uh, couple of verses is he's telling us to respond to the evil aimed at us in the same way that he responded to the evil that was aimed at him. I mean, think about what he says in verse 44. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? Why should we do that? Well, he goes on to say, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. In other words, when we love our enemies, when we pray for those who have directed evil at us, who have persecuted us, we take on family likeness. We truly behave like God's children. We mimic God. We imitate the actions of Jesus. In fact, God acts this way all the time. I mean, when there's a beautiful sunny day, guess who gets to experience that beautiful sunny day? Both the righteous and the unrighteous. Both the good and the evil. Both the bad and the the not bad. And when it's a rainy day, when we get the the rain comes down and the showers come down, they replenish the, the moisture and the soil around us, who gets the blessing of that? Who gets the benefit of that? Well, God directs that both to the the evil as well as the good, both the righteous as well as the unrighteous. So how does this work? So what is the first step in blessing those who persecute us? Well, inherent in the word bless, as I said a moment ago, is desiring well or good for that person. It's really desiring for God's favor upon that person. It's really desiring for God's salvation for that person. And we all recognize that salvation really begins with an honest desire for God to forgive sin. So before we can ever hope to love our enemies, before we can ever hope to bless those who persecute us, we must start by willfully choosing to forgive them in the same way that God has forgiven us. Now, that's not easy. And I think this is where a lot of us get stuck 
because we confuse the feeling of forgiveness with the action of forgiving. We unwisely and wrongfully believe that to forgive someone is to somehow let them off the hook. Uh, Therefore, justice will never be served. In fact, I believe a lot of our reluctance to forgive is really kind of rooted in a kind of a warped understanding of what it means to forgive someone and a lack of understanding of exactly how the Bible tells us to do it. So I want us to spend just a few moments highlighting what God's word means when it says that we are to forgive. Because if we're going to bless those who persecute us, bless them and not curse them, it really begins by developing this mindset of forgiveness. Now, I recognize that uh, really we could spend a whole sermon just on the topic of forgiveness. In fact, we could spend a whole series of sermons just on the topic of forgiveness. People have written books that are several hundred pages long just on the topic of forgiveness. So there is no way this morning in the next couple of minutes as we address this issue that we can cover everything. But I think in these next couple of minutes as we talk about forgiveness, I think one of the things we can do is at least get a basic biblical outline for how God intends forgiveness to work itself out. As I look at the Bible, I think forgiveness is basically, basically comes in three stages. Three stages. Stage number one, we could simply call the choice to forgive. The choice to forgive. Stage number one is really an action of the will. We don't need to feel like forgiving someone. We don't have to have the right emotions. We simply need to choose to make a choice, a decision, an act of the will to release any action of vengeance or retribution or retaliation in word or behavior to God. And again, this is a stage, right? We all know that stages take time. This isn't something that necessarily happens overnight. It involves some steps along the way. But we come to that place where by an act of the will, even if we don't feel like it, we choose to release those actions of vengeance to God. In other words, when it comes to making our way down this path of forgiveness, we can't let our feelings lead the way. We need to let our actions lead the way. I mean, think about that for a moment. If we let our feelings lead the way in the normal stuff of life, how would that work? If I let my feelings decide whether or not I went to work tomorrow morning, or if you let your feelings decide whether or not you went to work tomorrow morning, I imagine a lot of us wouldn't go to work, right? And if we let our feelings control whether or not we go to work all week, well, we might show up on Tuesday, maybe Wednesday. By Thursday afternoon, we're out of here. Friday, no way, it's the weekend, you know? I just don't feel like going to work. But you know, when it comes to going to work, we don't let our feelings lead the way. We choose to go to work because we know it's the right thing to do. What about going to school? You know, if we allowed our feelings to control whether or not we went to school, um, I don't know about the, those of you that are here that are going to school, but I'm pretty sure on Monday morning, I didn't feel like it. And I probably wouldn't go if I let my feelings run the show. Probably maybe would show up Tuesday, maybe Wednesday again, but by Friday, I would not be at school at all because if I let my feelings make the decisions, but we don't do that. We go to school because it's the right thing to do. It's the right choice to make. Even though I don't feel on Monday morning like going to work or going to school, I still go to work, I still go to to school because it's the right thing to do. You say, is that being a hypocrite? No, no, it's just not allowing our feelings to run our lives. It's doing the right thing even when I don't feel like it. And so when it comes to forgiveness, the same thing is true. 
The first stage in forgiveness is really an act of the will. Even though I may not feel like it, even though my emotions may not be there, but I choose both in my words and in my behavior to release any temptation, any desire for any action of retribution and retaliation and vengeance, I turn that over to God. That's where forgiveness begins. That's sort of the first stage in it. But there's a second stage. In the second stage in forgiveness, we might simply call the process of forgiving. And this is a process whereby our emotions over time, and this can take weeks, it can take months, might even take years, but it is a process whereby over time our emotions begin to align with our actions. We've been doing the right actions, we've been taking the right steps in stage one, and eventually our emotions catch up with our actions. You say, well, how does that work? How do we do that? Well, again, I think the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 really help us. Because here in Romans 12, it says to bless those who persecute us. And Jesus said in Matthew 5 that we are to pray for those who persecute us. And I think in a very big way, blessing that person and allowing our emotions to catch up with our actions when it comes to forgiveness really begins by praying for that person. We need to pray, or we in our prayers, we need to continually remind ourselves of how merciful how kind, how forgiving, how gracious God has been to me. Despite the evil in my heart, despite the evil that I've aimed at other people, despite the evil that I've aimed at God. So if we're going to bless those that persecute us, we need to pray for those who persecute us. And it starts by really continually reminding ourselves of how merciful and kind and gracious and forgiving God has been to me. And then we need to pray that God would show that person who's been the source of evil in my life, the same undeserved mercy, the same grace, the same favor of God. We need to begin to pray that God would bless that person's life, that God would forgive that person, bless their career, their ministry, their life. And as we do that, as we pray for those who persecute us, as we bless them by praying for them over a period of time, our emotions start to catch up with our actions so that we're not just avoiding doing extra actions of retribution against them, but we're not even feeling like doing actions of retribution against them any longer. And again, that takes time. And the third stage is what we might simply call completely forgiven. And this is when the Spirit of God not only aligns our choice to forgive with the emotional experience of not wanting to seek retribution against them, but it brings us to the place where we genuinely feel joy when blessings occur and that person's life. We genuinely feel joy when they get a promotion. We feel joy when they have a baby or build a new house, when they take that once-in-a-lifetime vacation, when they recover from an illness, when they graduate with honors. And I recognize that getting to that place where we begin to really feel joy for their successes and the good things that happen to them, that doesn't happen overnight. It's a long-term process. There are stages involved. But as we learn to bless our persecutors by praying for him or praying for her, guess who's the person that's set free? It's not them. It's us. We're set free. We're set free from all that, that Satan would like us to hold on to in our hearts. We're freed from all of that. No longer is that, that play on our actions or play on our emotions or play on our life. So in light of all that, here's a, a couple of things that we might want to do. 
Here's a bit of an assignment for us. If we're going to begin our journey toward living out our faith in relationship to those who do evil toward us, then I think we have to do a few things. And the first thing I need to do is I need to write down or jot down who in my life has aimed evil at me. And therefore, who do I need to forgive? I've got to actually name them. I've got to put it on paper or put it in the, 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 the note app in my phone or whatever. Actually put their names down because that tells me then who do I need to forgive? And then the second thing, having put their names down, I need to ask what stage in the forgiveness process am I at with these individuals? Am I at stage one, the choice to forgive? Am I at stage two, sort of this process of my emotions catching up to my actions? Or am I at stage three, where I'm at a point that as I think about them, I can now rejoice with them when good things happen in their lives? Where am I at with my forgiveness? So along with that, I need to ask myself, am I regularly praying for these individuals? So I write down their names. I ask myself, where am I at in the process of forgiveness and the stages of forgiveness? I ask myself, am I regularly praying for them? And I think another thing that will help us immensely is to write out and or memorize the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 43 to 45. We need to hide those words in our heart. Why? So that we won't sin against God. So that we won't continually break this directive that he gives us in Romans 12, 14 to bless our persecutors, to bless and not curse them. And so I write that verse, those verses down. I memorize those verses. I read them. I pray through them each and every day. So when it comes to overcoming the evil that is aimed at me, when it comes to living out my faith, when it comes to people who have been the conduit of evil in my life, I need to internally develop this mindset of forgiveness. That's the first step in what it means to bless our enemies. But there's a second step. A second step in carrying out this positive command of verse 14. And that second step is found in verse 15. And we're simply going to call this actions of identification. Actions of identification. Not only do I need a mindset of forgiveness, but I need to have actions of identification. Look at verse 15. It says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. So how does a follower of Christ move beyond the mindset of genuine forgiveness to specific actions of blessing? Let's remember that the commands given in these verses describe the way we are to bless those who are or have treated us with evil. And it involves really identifying with them in the experiences of their life, weeping when those who do evil toward us weep, rejoicing when those same people rejoice. I mean, can you imagine what might happen if by God's amazing grace, we were to follow the words of verse 15? I mean, what would happen if we identified with others and rejoiced with the joys of those who hurt us when they experienced the birth of a baby or the recovery of an illness or a wedding, a promotion, a new home, a long-awaited vacation, whatever it might be? I mean, imagine what it would communicate if we jotted them a note, even though they had hurt us at one time, if we were to be able to listen to their story, if we were able to ask questions about their journey, if we were to let them relive and re-experience that joy, nothing, I think, communicates clearer what it means to be a follower of Christ more than treating people the way Jesus treated his enemies. And again, let's remember that this verse is in the context of 
of blessing those who persecute us, not seeking their vengeance. See, we tend to take this verse and we put it in the context of our small group, right? In our small group, we should rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those who weep. This is not a small group verse, unless all your small group members are persecuting you. If all your small group members are doing evil to you, then you probably ought to find a new small group, all right? This verse is in the context not of small group and fellowship amongst believers that are friends with each other. This verse is in the context of people that are aiming evil at me. And it says I'm to rejoice when they rejoice. And I'm to weep with those who weep. I mean, what what about demonstrating identification with those who do evil to us in times of their pain? I mean, consider how we might respond to someone who's wounded us or hurt us, you know, when they experience the death of one of their family members or the loss of their job or they experience a troubled child or a troubled marriage or a serious illness or an auto accident. What do you think it would communicate to the people who have treated us with evil if we took time to cry with them, listen to them, pray with them? Again, remember, the verse says, weep with those who weep. It doesn't say preach to those who weep. It says, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And I want to share a little story with you. Um, early on in, uh, in, in, uh, in my years that I was a pastor, um, we had a situation in, in the first church that I was at where we had to, uh, we had to uh, eliminate one of the staff members. Um, it wasn't that the staff member had done anything particularly evil or anything like that. It was just that when we hired this staff member, we had a, a particular role that we needed them to fill. And uh, this was the first ministry experience for this person. And, uh, um, and we learned over the next three or four years that this person just really couldn't fill that role. Again, it wasn't that they were evil necessarily or bad. It was trying to put a square peg in a round hole, right? And even though they wanted to fulfill that role, fill that role, and even though they wanted to do a good job, their gift mix, their personality, their background, their skill set, their training, it just didn't work. And so even though we tried to make that square peg fit in that round hole, it just wasn't fitting. So as a leadership team of the church, we finally came to the realization that, that, that we just had to make a change. We had to make a termination here. And so we, we terminated, we eliminated, we, we let that staff member go. Well, as you can imagine, within a church setting, that was not an easy pill for some people to swallow. And uh, I remember uh, one couple in particular who were very close friends of, of this staff member and his family who we had to uh, terminate and, and, and ended the, their, their role at the church. Uh, one couple in particular was really, really angry. And uh, much of their anger was directed at me. And I understood that to some degree because at the end of the day, I mean, the decision was made. And the decision was made, and they didn't like the decision. And I remember over the course of the next several weeks and several months that it seemed like at at every turn, uh, this couple was just really, really nasty toward me and did everything they could to, I would say, aim evil at me. Now, I'm not saying it was, it was necessarily an easy thing to do to terminate this person. I recognize that they were unhappy about that decision. But, I mean, it, it just got carried away. And just everything they did, everything they said for the weeks and the months that followed were just really nasty and really evil directed at me. And uh, about uh, 12 months down the road from when this, this uh, termination had taken place, um, the, this couple, the, the man, his name was Ed, Ed had to have open-heart surgery. And uh, he was going to have open-heart surgery at the Cleveland Clinic. I was pastoring a church in a suburb of Cleveland. And, uh, you know, the good news when you're in Cleveland is you have the Cleveland Clinic. 
And the Cleveland Clinic is the finest uh, heart uh, hospital in the world. But the bad thing about the Cleveland Clinic is when you're going to the Cleveland Clinic for heart surgery, that means you've got a really bad problem, all right? Because you just don't go there if everything's sort of okay. And so Ed was going to have open heart surgery at the Cleveland Clinic, and I knew the day he was having the surgery and the time he was having the surgery and obviously where he was having the surgery. And I remember thinking in my mind in the day or two leading up to that date, you know, Mark, should you, uh, should you go down to the hospital that morning and, and pray with Ed, and his wife's name was Bobby, pray with Ed and Bobby before he goes into surgery? And I remember my feelings were, no way, no how. You know, I didn't feel like going down there, didn't really want to go down there. In fact, I remember kind of justifying in my mind, well, you know, they really don't like me, and they've demonstrated that clearly over and over again. So if I show up that morning, I'm just probably going to make things more miserable, right? I mean, he's already going to very serious heart surgery. The last thing they need that morning is for me to show up, right? You know, you talk about it'll even make things more miserable. So I was even justifying in my mind why I shouldn't show up and why I shouldn't be there, why I shouldn't pray for them or with them. And as the morning approached, you know, the Holy Spirit of God just convicted my heart, like, Mark, don't listen to your feelings. Do what is right. Just take the right action. So that morning, I drove down to the Cleveland Clinic and uh, went up to the, uh, the surgery uh, prep area and uh, walked into the room where Ed and Bobby were, and it was just the two of them. They had a couple of children, but adult children, but their children weren't there. It was just the two of them. And I kind of tapped on the door, and I kind of walked in, and, you know, the first thing I kind of said is, like, like I, you know, I, I realize, you know, our relationship is strained. And I realize there's a lot that has gone on here. So, you know, I just wanted to come up and pray with you this morning. And truly, if, if you don't want me here, I'll just, I'll just turn around and go home. I'm not trying to make this worse for you, you know. But no, Ed and Bobby said, no, you, you can come in and pray. That's fine. So I came in and we talked for a couple of minutes and then prayed together. And then the, the folks came and wheeled Ed off to the, uh, to the uh, operating room. And as uh, Bobby and I were walking toward the waiting room where she'd be waiting, I asked her, I said, is, is anybody going to stay here with you? Because the outcome of this surgery was not guaranteed. This was not a guaranteed good outcome to this surgery. I mean, they were concerned whether he'd even make it through the surgery. And as I asked Bobby, I said, Bobby, is anybody going to be here with you? They had a son and a daughter. Are they coming? And she said, no, this all happened so quickly, and they weren't, they weren't able to be here this morning, so I'm just going to be here by myself. And I kind of thought, you know, wow, it's not nice to be by yourself in a surgery waiting room, you know, especially when you don't know the outcome. And so I said, Bobby, would you, would you mind if I just stayed here and waited with you today until the doctor comes out and says how things turned out? And uh, she said, no, I'd be fine. And so for the next several hours, we just kind of sat in that waiting room and chatted back and forth a little bit. Didn't really talk about all the issues of our relationship. It didn't seem like the right time. But we just talked over different things. And about three, four hours later, the surgeon came out and uh, shared with Bobby how the surgery had went. And fortunately, it was good news. Surgery had gone well. You know, they were able to repair the heart. They were able to do the right thing. And it looked like Ed was going to have a complete recovery. So after we got the word from the surgeon, you know, I, I prayed with Bobby again, thanking the Lord for answers to prayer, and then I left. And uh, over the course of the next couple of days, as Ed was still in the hospital recovering, went back to the hospital a couple of times and uh, just talked to them, see how he was doing. And what was amazing here is how it changed our relationship. Even though, I, even though I didn't feel like doing that, and even though my attitude wasn't good, in fact, my attitude going there that morning was kind of like, well, even though they've done the wrong things, I'm going to do the right thing. You know, that was kind of my attitude really that morning. So I was a little haughty, a little full of myself, you know, for being the better person than they were. Um, but in spite of my haughtiness, in spite of my pride, in spite of the garbage that was going on in my own heart, 
doing the right thing, it just changed everything. In the weeks and the months following that, our relationship changed. You know, our communication changed. Our actions changed. And that's what it's talking about here in the text. It's talking about weeping when those who direct evil toward us weep, weeping with them. Rejoicing when those who direct evil toward us, when they rejoice, right? We've got to do that. That's what it means to bless our enemies, those that have done evil toward us. We need that mindset of forgiveness. We need those actions of identification with them. And then there's a third thing that the the writer talks about here as he's talking about this positive command, and that is that we need to show our conduct needs to show humility. Our conduct needs to show humility. So I have this mindset of forgiveness, these actions of of blessing and identification. I could, like I said a moment ago, get real big and full of myself about that because I'm doing the right thing when they haven't done the right thing. But look at verse 16. He says, live in harmony with one another. Again, this is in the context of those who are directing evil at me. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So when dealing with those who've done evil to us, it is easy to develop develop a self-righteous attitude. But the text makes it clear that there is to be no sense of superiority as we relate to those who have hurt us. The contrast to not being haughty, not being arrogant, is actually to live in harmony with one another and associate with the lowly. And the word lowly here is a very interesting word. It literally means that which, is as, that which does not rise far above the ground. So we're to associate with those folks that don't rise much above the ground. In other words, we're to associate and identify with those who have sunk to such low degree in hurting us. And you know what it says there? It says to live in harmony with them. It says to associate with them. I mean, it's one thing to forgive them and then just ignore them. You know, it's one thing to maybe, you know, occasionally weep when they weep or rejoice when they rejoice. But now I'm called to live in harmony and associate with those who have sunk to low degrees in hurting me. You say, God, how, 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 do, I, how do I do that? How, how do I get to that place? Well, you know, as I was thinking about that, I think there's a great story in the book of Genesis that helps us with this, and it's the story of Joseph. I want you to take your Bible again and turn to Genesis 45. You you know a bit of the story of Joseph, right? Uh, Joseph grew up in, I guess, what we would call today a dysfunctional family. Had a number of brothers. um, Didn't get along well with his brothers. Uh, Dad showed great favoritism toward Joseph. Gave him this multicolored tunic. Uh, probably did other things that showed his favoritism. Uh, as they were growing up, Joseph had a couple of dreams, and the, the, uh, the, uh, the interpretation of the dreams was that someday he was going to be above his brothers, even though they were older and he was younger. So a lot of stuff went on in those sibling situations that were just not pretty in Joseph's family. It just didn't go well. A lot of, lot of, lot of family issues going on there uh, during those growing up years. And then, you know, the story said that one day his brothers were out tending the family flocks, um, and uh, dad said to Joseph, Joseph, go out and see how the brothers and how the flocks are doing. So as Joseph was approaching the brothers, the brothers thought, this is our opportunity. You know, let's kill him. All right. But instead of killing him, they threw him in a pit. And then instead of just leaving him there in the pit to die, they sold him to a group of Midianites that were going down to Egypt. I don't know that that's really a better thing. You know, I don't know if it'd be better to murder him or sell him into slavery, but none of them were nice. They were all very evil things. They were directing at Joseph. 
And so Joseph finds himself in Egypt, all right, a foreign land, foreign country, foreign language, foreign everything, foreign food, foreign culture, away from everything he'd ever known. And he's now a slave to a guy by the name of Potiphar. And over the course of several years, he works really hard, even though he was a slave, to the point that he, he kind of uh, uh, has this sort of position of leadership within the slaves or within the household of Potiphar. But there's some issues with Potiphar's wife. And Joseph gets falsely accused. Nobody listens to his side of the story. They just direct evil at him. He gets thrown into prison. He's there in prison for a number of years. Eventually, while he's in prison, uh, the pharaoh of Egypt, his butler and his baker are thrown into prison. Over time, they each have dreams. Joseph interprets the dreams. The interpretations come out true. The butler is restored to his position. Joseph says to the butler, don't forget about me. But the butler forgets totally about Joseph. Again, directs evil toward him. It's the brothers. It's Potiphar and Potiphar's wife. It's the butler. It's everybody's directing evil at Joseph. He ends up being in the prison a number of years longer until finally Pharaoh has a dream. And suddenly it dawns on the butler, oh, I know this guy, you know? He's in prison. I had a dream. He interpreted my dream. Maybe you can interpret your dream, right? And eventually you know the story that things turn out well, and he becomes the sort of the prime minister of evil. But all this got started, all of these years of slavery and imprisonment in Joseph's life, probably went on between one to two decades of his life. All of this was because of the evil that Joseph's brothers aimed at him. And yet we come to Genesis 45, And let me read for you, beginning in verse 4. Just listen to the words of Joseph. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you that sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you, you must tell my father of all, the honor in, of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and they wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all of his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. And then you flip over to Genesis 50, verse 20. All right? And again, Joseph says, verse 20, As for you... You meant evil against me. You directed, you aimed evil at me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. 
Now, folks, I don't want to read too much between the lines, but this sounds a lot like Romans 12, verses 14 to 16. This sounds a lot like mindset of forgiveness. Sounds like a lot like identifying and weeping with those who are weeping. Sounds a lot like me. His conduct was all carried out in humility. And instead of focusing on himself and his own interests, he focused on his brothers and their families and their interests. You say, how did Joseph do that? Well, if you look at the text, it simply says, in verse 7, it says, and God. In verse 5, it says, for God. In verse 9, it says, God has. Come over to chapter 50, it says, but God. Somehow Joseph, and I'm sure it wasn't easy, and I'm sure it didn't happen overnight, and I'm sure there were times when he didn't feel like it, but because of God, because of the power of God, because of the amazing grace of God, because of the work of God, Joseph was able to bless those who persecuted him, to bless them and not curse them. Is this stuff easy? No, it's not easy. Was it easy for Joseph? I bet it wasn't. I bet there were days when he sat in that lousy prison for years, you know, when he battled through this and struggled through this. But God, but God, but God. So again, an assignment. And this assignment begins by talking to God. And we say to God, God, show me how you want me to apply these truths, this positive command in my specific circumstances. Who in my life do I need to forgive? For any of this to happen, we have got to bring God into the equation. It's the only way Joseph could do it. It's the only way we can do it. And then think through, what would it look like in my situation to rejoice with or weep with those who have treated me wrongly? Is it going to be easy? No. Am I necessarily going to feel like doing it? Probably not. But it's obedience. It's what God calls us to do. It's what he wants us to do. And then number three, share with someone who's been treated wrongly what we've learned today. You see, you may walk out of here today saying, you know, I mean, there really hasn't been that much evil directed at me. Oh, yeah, a used car dealer ripped me off one time. Or somebody sold me a bad set of tires. Or somebody did this little evil or that little wrong toward me. Or I didn't get along with somebody at work and they weren't very nice about it. But generally speaking, you know, I haven't really had that much evil directed at me. But I dare say that somebody you know has. And God would want you to take the things that are taught in this text and share them with them and encourage them, and minister to them, and help them to be that, um, that conduit of good in their lives, that, that uh, servant of God in their lives. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, today we thank you for uh, uh, the instructions of this passage. Lord, this is, this is not an easy text. As Grant was reading it uh, a while back, just a few minutes ago, just listening to the words about blessing our persecutors, and not seeking vengeance, but leaving that to God and allowing good to overcome evil and not evil overcome good and all these things when it relates to those who have been so nasty to us and so horrible and awful to us. Um, Lord, this is not easy stuff to do. But Father, how, how important it is that we not only live out our faith in, in easy and good situations, but we live out our faith in hard and difficult situations. So, Father, help us. Help us to take these truths. 
and to pray through them and think through them and ask ourselves tough questions, important questions, so that we might apply these truths and live these truths for your honor and for your glory and to really see that, uh, that your grace and good and doing what is good really does overcome evil. We thank you for your truth, the help that it gives us, the hope that it gives us, because it's effective and powerful. We thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. Harvest Lakeshore exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org.